Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Rebecca Robbins. Adam and I are coming to you from STAT's newsroom here in Boston. Rebecca is recording from STAT's San Francisco outpost. It's Thursday, May 10th, and here's what's on the docket this week. So here's our obvious lead. This week, the world learned that Novartis thought it was a good idea to pay $1.2 million to President Trump's fixer in exchange for consulting on, quote, U.S. healthcare policy matters. What? And why? We will discuss. Spark Therapeutics sells an $850,000 a person gene therapy. And that's created a conundrum for the Amish community, where insurance is considered a violation of religious principles. Stat reporter Eric Budman joins us to talk about the story. A Pennsylvania health system plans to start offering DNA sequencing, just like they would do a cholesterol check for patients getting routine preventative care. We'll talk about what the mainstreaming of genetic sequencing means for biopharma. And Adam will take us down biotech's memory lane, looking back on a time when the world's biggest cancer conference was the Wild West for investors and reporters alike. But first, a word from our sponsor. At Takeda, we work tirelessly every day to serve the needs of our patients. We aim to earn the trust of society and our customers through our integrity, fairness, honesty, and perseverance. We strive to be best in class and won't stop until we help create better health and a brighter future for people around the world. Learn more by visiting us at Takeda.com. So let's start with the big blockbuster story of the week, which is every pharma PR person's worst nightmare. A senior official at pharmaceutical company Novartis telling NBC News Cohen reached out to the company's then CEO shortly after the election, promising access to the new administration. The company says it paid Cohen nearly $1.2 million for what was supposed to be advice on health care policy, but soon realized Cohen couldn't deliver. So unless you've been living under a rock, you probably already know the broad brushstrokes of what happened. It was even on Colbert last night. Cohen also got a boatload of dinero from global pharmaceutical giant Novartis. Side effects of taking money from Novartis may include headache, nausea, and extended jail time. So one of the first stories we put up, which was way back on Wednesday morning, was looking at a few of the unanswered questions tied to Novartis and its relationship to Michael Cohen and Donald Trump. We have answers now to some of those questions, and many of them remain unanswered as they were on Wednesday. So let's go through them and kind of see where we stand now. Right, so at the top, we asked, why Michael Cohen? The basic gist seems to be that this was a shakedown. Cohen was basically selling access to the president and the White House. He was telling companies that were trying to understand the new administration that he was their guy. The message seemed to be, look, you don't understand Trump. I do. I'm his longtime fixer. Just pay me. Politico, in fact, had a good line quoting a consultant who referred to Cohen and other opportunists as, quote, Trump whisperers, unquote. And then what did Novartis get for that $1.2 million? So, Damien, I don't think Novartis got much of anything. Uh, you know, in a story that our colleague Ed Silverman wrote on this, on, on this controversy, you know, a Novartis source told him that really there was a, it was basically a slippery slope to engage with Cohen, uh, you know, essentially that the emperor had no clothes. I love the image of that, too, the moment at which they realized that, because I'm imagining the sort of stoic Swiss Novartis emissaries sitting down with Michael Cohen, who is, in what I've seen of him, kind of a central casting figure of, like, New York City cliché sliminess, and I just, I would love to be in a fly on the wall in that meeting. 
Which raises the question, how did these well-dressed, deep-pocketed Novartis executives get involved with Cohen in the first place? So that's a fascinating question, and we know more than we did, but we still don't totally understand. Again, citing Ed Silverman's reporting, but also I believe NBC News reported something similar, Michael Cohen was basically ringing people up, offering that access, and it was former Novartis CEO Joe Jimenez who took that call, basically, and chose to engage with him, or chose to tell Novartis to engage with Cohen. The other thing that's fascinating is if you look across the other companies from other industries that also paid Michael Cohen, each of them has some sort of special situation in which bending the ear of the president would be advantageous. There was AT&T, which was trying to merge with Time Warner, a deal that the president disparaged in public. There was a Korean aerospace company that was bidding for a defense contract. And so my curiosity is, what about Novartis's situation, whether with the FDA or with the people who choose whether drugs get reimbursed? What about that made Michael Cohen think those Swiss people should give me their money? And then to add to this intrigue, you know, there's Robert Mueller, who is conducting a wide-ranging investigation into the Trump White House. Uh, you know, he asked Novartis in November for information on its dealings with Cohen. What do you think Robert Mueller wants from Novartis? We don't have a good idea of what kind of information he was looking for or how it might pertain to the investigation into ties with Russia. You raised an important point too, Adam, which is, why we didn't see any disclosure of this Mueller probe from Novartis. Novartis had two earnings calls uh, to tell investors about this probe. This is normally something we would see a company disclose, right? Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of thing where, you know, if a government entity or uh, investigatory entity of the government comes asking questions of you that you normally would disclose this to shareholders, but for in this case with Novartis and, and whatever kind of questions they got from Bob Mueller, you know, we didn't hear about it until this week. And I imagine from their perspective, they would say, well, we weren't the target of the investigation. And, and, and Novartis did say this in a statement, we cooperated in full, they got what they wanted, and we considered the matter closed. The upside of disclosing things on the front end, however, is it doesn't look like you were hiding anything, whereas when it gets backed into by press reports and a third statement you had to make on a single day, which is what happened with Novartis on Wednesday, it looks a little fishier than maybe you'd like. And that gets to our kind of final question here is, you know, what on earth was Novartis thinking? I think it's undeniable that this is a very, very bad look for the company. It seems to confirm the public's sort of worst image of these corrupt, unaccountable, comic book villain pharma executives. And this time, of course, it has this high stakes international intrigue, part of an investigation that could ultimately determine the fate of a presidency. And this kind of dovetails with something we talk about quite often on this podcast, which is whenever some bit of news from the biopharmaceutical world kind of crosses the trench into popular culture, and it's almost always negative, and, and this is no exception. So I've seen tweets pointing out things like, ah, yes, this must be why drug prices need to stay so high, is to support such innovative science as paying $1.2 million to Michael Cohen. And then further making matters worse for Novartis is that that Cohen Shell Company is the exact same one that issued a payment to the adult film actress Stormy Daniels in exchange for her silence on an affair with the president. And thus, a creative headline writer could conceivably squeeze Novartis and Stormy Daniels into the same URL. And Novartis's current CEO is literally losing sleep over this. We know because he just sent an email to his employees. So as we were recording this podcast, Stats Ed Silverman, who's been getting a lot of mentions, reported out a story in which he obtained an internal email that Novartis CEO Voss Narasimhan sent to employees. Yesterday was not a good day for Novartis, he wrote, noting later that, personally, for my family, it was also a difficult day as unfounded stories spread through the US news. I went to sleep frustrated and tired. 
And of course, this story isn't over. Depending on where it goes, Voss could have plenty of restless nights ahead in Basel. One of the buzziest medicines in the business right now is Luxturna. This is a new gene therapy for a rare form of inherited blindness that is sold by Spark Therapeutics. It costs $850,000 per person. And Spark has been working closely with insurers to get the medicine to patients. And as regular listeners of this podcast may recall, stat reporter Eric Boodman wrote about the first child to get dosed back in March. Now he has a new story out looking at a patient demographic that doesn't often make the headlines. Old Order, Amish, and Mennonite families in the Plain community in rural Pennsylvania. Eric's here to talk to us about his story. Thanks so much for having me, Rebecca. So Eric, how do these uh, Amish communities handle insurance? It changes slightly from one community to another, but basically they believe that it's a community responsibility to take care of its own sick and elderly folks. And so they don't believe you should be accepting insurance from government agencies or from private companies. So they'll pool money from other members in the congregation to help pay for those services. And Eric, you wrote about two sisters in one of these communities who need Luxturna. Why can't Spark just give the drug away for free? That's a great question. And that's one that Kevin Strauss who is a doctor who works with Old Order Amish and Mennonite families, has been asking again and again. He's saying this community doesn't have $1.7 million to pay for this treatment. Either give us a 90% discount or give it to us for free. And Spark is saying, let's sign these kids up for Medicaid. And Dr. Strauss is saying, well, they don't do Medicaid. So basically, my understanding is that Spark is considering giving it away for free if they absolutely have to, but right now they don't really want to think about that. And if it turns out that Spark doesn't want to give it away for free or at that highly discounted price, what options will this family have? Well, this father could go to the deacons of his church and say, can you shell out $1.7 million, Uh, which is a little hard to stomach for a relatively poor farming community. Or he could potentially break with tradition and sign up for Medicaid for his kids, but that can have pretty serious consequences for his connection with his community because it's seen as a moral breach. Or he can watch his daughter's vision continue to fade. So no good choices. So Eric, I think one of the interesting aspects of your story was, you know, obviously we focused a lot on these two Amish sisters, but also on this advocate, this doctor who works alongside the Amish community in Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's sort of an interesting story because I first spoke to the father, but ultimately the father didn't want to be quoted or really featured in the story much at all. And that's a similar pattern to what happened with Spark, where Spark was in touch with the family, and then Spark independently reached out to Kevin Strauss at the Clinic for Special Children because they wanted help navigating the intricacies of Amish uh, attitudes towards healthcare. And so Eric, tell us a little bit more about this doctor's medical practice. Uh, These are the kind of situations he's dealt with before, right? So the Clinic for Special Children deals with old order Amish and Mennonite families. And in these communities, there's a pretty high rate of genetic disorders because a small number of founding families gave rise to this whole community. So Dr. Kevin Strauss has actually negotiated a number of discounts 
for them, both at hospitals around Pennsylvania and Delaware, but also with drug companies. So Spinraza is a great example where he just found out about uh, Biogen's patient access program, and now they have 16 patients who get Spinraza for free. So while Dr. Strauss has been successful in, in kind of getting other therapies uh, for rare diseases to, to his patients in the Amish community, in this case, I mean, it's, he's, it seems like he's a little frustrated. Um, I mean, is the reason that Spark doesn't want to just give this away for free is because, you know, this, this inherited form of blindness is just so rare. I mean, there's so few patients that actually have this disease. Yeah, that's exactly it, because it costs a lot to make, and there aren't that many people who are going to get it. And so to make it worthwhile, they want to charge a very high price. In this case, it's especially interesting because these two girls have come forward and are trying to get the therapy, but there are other families in the same community who are using the, them as a test case. And if they're able to get it, then they'll come forward and say, my kid has RPE 65 associated retinal blindness. We want Luxterna too. Well, thanks, Eric, for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So there was a big healthcare technology conference in Las Vegas this week, and curiously, the biggest headline came from an unusual suspect, the Pennsylvania Health System Geisinger. They announced a new plan to offer genetic sequencing to everybody coming in for an annual physical. The health system's president and CEO, Dr. David Feinberg, likened it to talking to patients about a cholesterol check. And to me, that sounds really expensive and probably unnecessary. So why are they doing this? So they're hoping that doing this will save them money in the long run if they can catch diseases earlier or eliminate them entirely. One example that the head of the health system gave was a genetic form of high cholesterol that increases risk for cardiovascular disease, stroke, heart attack, and a pretty large percentage of people have that condition. It's something like one in 250, but we don't have good data about how many people actually have it because there's not a lot of routine testing for it. And the idea is that this is gonna cost something like $300 to $500 a patient. So that's what's going to have to be weighed in evaluating cost and benefit for this testing. So let's say Geisinger's decision convinces other health systems to try something similar. What does that mean for the industry as a whole? So I think it's good news for companies selling genetic tests, without a doubt. One of the biggest problems with their business models so far has been that your average community primary care provider in, say, Kansas, just doesn't regularly engage in the world of genetics at all. It simply doesn't come up. And right now, there's been a real mismatch of supply and demand when it comes to genetic testing. So there was a recent story in the Washington Post that quoted a, a, a journal study that showed that there was this uh, explosion of genetic tests over the past four years with about 10 new genetic tests entering uh, the market each day. But the Post also looked at another study of hundreds of primary care providers in New York City. And what that study found was that only about a third of these doctors ever ordered a genetic test or referred a patient to genetic counseling. So let's say I actually make and sell drugs. What does all this mean to me? So more community-level sequencing, like we're seeing with Geisinger, can only mean more partnerships for drug makers looking to collect data for research. And Geisinger, incidentally, is an example of one of those partnerships. Right, so uh, Geisinger has an ongoing research partnership with Regeneron Pharmaceuticals that right now is sequencing the DNA of thousands of patients. 
and maybe this is just coincidental, but that genetic form of high cholesterol you mentioned that Geisinger is screening for, it just so happens that Regeneron's very slow-selling anti-cholesterol drug is approved to treat that very disease. Sounds like a potential synergy. Is that a marketing opportunity, Rebecca? Can drug makers use genetic testers to actually goose sales? I think you could point to the business model pioneered by Invitae. Uh, that's a company in the Bay Area that sells a bunch of physician-ordered genetic tests. They have a few partnerships with drug makers who cover the cost of genetic tests for conditions, uh, usually in which they market a drug. So Biomarin, for instance, pays for Invitae's genetic tests for kids who get seizures, with the idea being that that can help them identify new patients to take their drug. So this could be a new frontier for genetic testing as a form of marketing. I can already see the TV ads. Now let's talk about something forward-looking. If you follow biotech news on Twitter, you are about to be awash in news about ASCO. As you probably know, ASCO, or the American Society of Clinical Oncology, has a great big annual conference where companies present market-moving data on new cancer drugs. And next week, the world is going to get its first peek at all that data. And if you happen to be hanging around the biotech Twitter stream next Wednesday night, you're likely to see a buzz of activity starting around 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, expect to see a flood of tweets, all carrying the hashtag ASCO18. And it happens that way right at that moment, because a gigantic pile of research abstracts go live on the ASCO site. These are a sneak peek at early data that will be presented at the meeting. And so when these abstracts contain clinical data that had never before seen the light of day, biotech and pharma investors get really, really interested. So nowadays, everybody gets access to those abstracts at the same time. But back in the sepia tone days of the early 2000s, it was the Wild West. And now Adam is going to get old-timey. So Damien, Rebecca, gather around and let Uncle Adam tell you a story. I think you need a rocking chair, Adam. You know, these are back in the days when uh, the internet was in its infancy and we all commuted to work on dinosaurs. So yeah, nowadays, if I want to know one of these research abstracts, I go to the ASCO website, I download a PDF, everybody else does the same thing, and then it's all over. Let's say the year is 2001, Adam. What was it like then? Right, it was totally different back then. So back in the early 2000s, ASCO, and you won't believe this, ASCO actually published a telephone-sized book that contained the abstracts. And only later did they graduate to a password-protected website. Now, what was interesting about this was that not everyone could have access to these abstracts. The abstracts were only handed out to ASCO members. So that meant that the information was kind of selectively disclosed. And when I started reporting about ASCO back in 2000, 2001, what investors would do is they would like go find an ASCO member and they would grab the abstract book and they would run to Kinko's and they would Xerox the information and then they would trade on it. So come back to the present, come Wednesday, we'll see biotech stocks go up or down based on the data contained in these abstracts. But what was it like back then when the information was sort of selectively known by members of the market? Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, back then there was a lot of volatility in the biotech and drug stocks too. They went up and down, but for reasons that were sort of unapparent to most people. Uh, Michael Becker, who's a, a biotech consultant, he's a friend of STAT, he actually coined the phrase, the ASCO effect, 
which kind of explained this sort of mysterious volatility in stocks, which was really happening because there were select few people who would have the access to the ASCO abstracts and would trade on them while everyone else was left in the dark. Wait, that sounds kind of like insider trading to me. When I started reporting on this stuff, I asked that same question, Rebecca, like, isn't this insider trading? And what I found out was that there were some like really kind of big loopholes, even in the regulation FD, you know, regulation full disclosure laws that had just been enacted about what constituted or what didn't constitute insider trading. And when I would ask ASCO this, or I would talk to attorneys, there was, you know, a lot of gray area. Like they just basically said, well, the laws don't apply to groups like ASCO. So did the SEC ever look into or do anything about the ASCO effect? So they did. I mean, I'd, I'd done a bunch of reporting on this back again in the early 2000s, and the SEC did look into it. And essentially under pressure, groups like ASCO kind of reformed themselves. You know, they basically realized that selectively disclosing this market-moving information was not a good idea, even if it was legal. So they started to democratize and eventually evolved to a system like we have today, where everybody gets access to the abstract at the same time. There's a lot of debate about whether the world is getting better or whether it's getting worse. And I think in this very narrow subset, uh, ASCO abstracts, we can definitively say that indeed the world is getting better. And that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. But before we go, I want to note a correction. I, in episode eight, said that Amgen won the first approval for one of those new cardiovascular drugs. It was in fact Regeneron and Sanofi. And then I later said Vertex when I meant Valiant, which is sort of a colossal mistake on my part. And anyway, I apologize for it and I will accept a one game suspension. We forgive you, Damien. Meanwhile, we want to thank Jeff Delvisio and Hyacinth Empanado who produced this week's episode. Jeff Dalvisio is also our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And a standing reminder that we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, topics you want to hear in the future, guests who might make a good addition to the podcast. We truly cherish your feedback, and you can email it to us at readoutloud at statnews.com. Until next week, thanks a lot. <laughs>